Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Nigeria records no new coronavirus cases. President Joe Biden says the U.S. must change laws that enable discrimination. In economics news, Namibia maintains a duty-free quota access to the U.K. And in sports news, South Africa prepares for the AFCON qualifier against Ghana. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. South African non-governmental organization AfriForum has submitted a formal application to the State Capture Commission to cross-examine President Cyril Ramaphosa regarding the ANC's policy on CADA deployment. AfriForum's head of policy, Ernest Roots, says they want the commission to summon Ramaphosa to answer to its questions regarding the time he was the chairperson of the ANC's committee on CADA deployment from 2013 to 2016. Roots says the individuals they want to question Ramaphosa about include Brian Mulife, Dudu Muyeni, Praveen Godan, Lucky Montana, Jeff Khadebe, Lynn Brown and Tlantlanene. The ANC's policy of cadre deployment is arguably the most significant contributing factor to state capture and corruption in South Africa. We do know that President Sir Ramaphosa, before he was president of the ANC, was the chairperson of the ANC's committee on cadre deployment. And we also know that in this time, various ANC loyalists were appointed to senior positions who have since been accused of corruption and state capture. The truth must come out and the most important person in this regard to come out with the truth would be the president himself, which is why AfriForum has called for him to be summoned to appear before the Zonda Commission and to be cross-examined about this issue in particular. Early results from the presidential election show that incumbent Dene Sasuengesu is in the lead as counting continues despite the death of his main rival guy Bryce Parafait Kalalas. Final results from Sunday's election are expected late in the week, but tallies from about 40% of the 86 districts showed that Sasu Ngesu is ahead, winning 100% of the vote in some areas. Meanwhile, Kulela's supporters mourned his death at the headquarters of the party, the UDH in the capital, Brazzaville. Police in Tanzania say a woman and four children have died after a stampede as Tanzanians mourn President John Magufuli. Some reports say the death toll could be as high as 40, but officials have not confirmed this. Tens of thousands of people had turned up at a stadium in Dar es Salaam to view the body of the former president. Nicknamed the bulldozer, Magufuli was popular with many Tanzanians for his no-nonsense governance style. Critics, however, accused him of being an autocrat and of clamping down on dissent. He also 
downplayed the effects of coronavirus and stopped the publication of the country's case numbers and deaths. Opposition politicians say that Makofuli died from COVID-19, but this has not been confirmed. International charity Save the Children says the long-running war in Yemen is having a catastrophic effect on the country's children. The charity says children make up almost a quarter of civilian casualties and are dying in the thousands from preventable causes. Saudi Arabia's meanwhile proposed a new peace plan to end nearly six years of war in Yemen. The BBC's Caroline Howley reports. The war in Yemen has created catastrophic levels of need, aid agencies say. Fighting is taking place in heavily populated areas and the conflict is becoming increasingly deadly for children. Save the Children says that millions of them are at risk not only of death and injury, but also starvation and disease. It says children are dying because they don't have enough food or access to clean drinking water. Acute malnutrition not only kills, Save the Children says, it also stunts children's growth and can disable them for life. The world should be outraged, senior officials with the charity say, and yet aid funding is being cut just when Yemen needs help the most. And finally, emergency teams and hundreds of volunteers are battling to contain a huge fire inside Rohingya refugee camps in southern Bangladesh. About a million Rohingyas live in the area. Most had fled violence in Myanmar more than three years ago. The BBC's Jill McGivering has the details. Pictures from the scene show rows of shelters engulfed by flames and vast clouds of thick black smoke. The fire's been blazing for several hours now and spreading rapidly. Fire teams are struggling to bring it under control. A representative for the children's agency, UNICEF, described it as devastating and said the coming hours would be critical. The shanties are insubstantial and packed close together. The last time fire broke out in January, thousands of people were left without shelter. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu. A very good morning to you. Our President Joe Biden is calling for laws that enable discrimination in the United States to be changed while urging Americans to change their hearts. The White House released a statement late on Sunday to mark the International Day for the elimination of racial discrimination, which is observed to mark the Shopville massacre on March the 21st in South Africa. Also observing the day at the United Nations, Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that racism was a vicious global pandemic that must be condemned without reservation. Sean Bryce Peace reports. The White House statement comes amid mounting pressure on law enforcement authorities to treat last week's deadly shooting in Atlanta of eight people, including six women of Asian descent, as a hate crime. Listen to Vice President Kamala Harris. The shootings took place as violent, 
hate crimes, and discrimination against Asian Americans has risen dramatically over the last year and more. In fact, over the past year, 3,800 such incidents have been reported, two of three by women, everything from physical assaults to verbal accusations. And it's all harmful. And sadly, it's not new. Racism is real in America, and it has always been. Xenophobia is real in America, and always has been. Sexism, too. According to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, the incidence of hate crimes against Asian Americans rose by 149% in 2020 in 16 major cities compared with 2019. Incidents from verbal shunning or harassment to physical attacks, largely due to irresponsible scapegoating around the pandemic. President Joe Biden. Too many Asian Americans have been walking up and down the streets and worrying waking up each morning the past year feeling their safety and the safety of their loved ones are at stake. They've been attacked, blamed, scapegoated, and harassed. They've been verbally assaulted, physically assaulted, killed. Documented incidents against, of hate against Asian Americans have seen a skyrocketing spike over the last year, let alone the ones that happened and never get reported. Biden called it one of the country's core values to stand as Americans against hate, referring to systemic racism and white supremacy as ugly poisons that have long plagued the nation, a sentiment echoed more broadly at the United Nations by Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Our duty as responsible global citizens is to eradicate it. Wherever we see racism, we must condemn it without reservation, without hesitation, without qualification. And this includes looking into our own hearts and minds. Each of us needs to ask, am I and my society racist? And what must I do to correct it? Addressing racism is not a one-time exercise. Racism is a complex cultural phenomenon. To fight racism, we have to be proactively anti-racist. Vigils and protests were held throughout the weekend in the United States in solidarity with the victims of last week's shooting amid fears here and elsewhere that racists have become emboldened. Ozodinma Iwiala is the CEO of the Harlem, New York-based Africa Center. If we don't act, racism will kill us all. We have to understand and acknowledge that these systems, these incredibly powerful structures that govern the way we operate, are based on this idea. Because of our complicated and interconnected histories of colonialism, subjugation, violence, and resistance, we all are the affected and the effectors. We all share the responsibility of making sure that the ways in which racism shows up in our systems explicitly and implicitly are seen, confronted, and checked so that we can use our energy for bolder and brighter pursuits. The International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination is observed annually on the day the police in Sharpeville, South Africa, opened fire and killed 69 people at a peaceful demonstration against apartheid pass laws in 1960. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. 
While the countries of the world participated in the UN's International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination on Monday, the anti-racism network South Africa, together with the Ahmed Kathrada Foundation, hosted a panel discussion on racism and the media. The event brought together industry experts from news editors and a former government department spokesperson to share their views and experiences. Horasani Sitol has more. The two-hour webinar looked at how the South African media handles issues of racism and how racism affects newsrooms. The panel contained two editors from different newsrooms and a former government spokesperson. The South African National Editors Forum, SANEF's Media Freedom Chair, Mary Papaya, says the media has the biggest role to bring about change, and that includes rooting out racism. Under the COVID-19 pandemic, we saved lives. We unearthed corruption. We played our role as the media for the public good. Perhaps then one needs to say, is it not time for the race issue to be reframed and given its own identity, far from the breaking story narrative? The panel was moderated by senior lecturer at Feds and Ahmed Kadrada Foundation board member Karen Abrams. Papaya says rooting out racism is going to take more than just reporting about the Vicky Mombeck case, which is just a drop in the ocean of the many racism-related cases. Media sets the news agenda. We select, we define, we communicate social issues of the day. But we have to be mindful. The struggles and tensions we experience when it comes to race is about inclusion and exclusion part of the whole or the majority feeling unheard, ignored, or experiencing the wounds of the past. Former government department spokesperson and independent advisor in the media and communications industry, Fidel Khatebe, also agrees. The media should hold itself to a set of standards, at least where ethics and professional standards are involved or are concerned, so that you avoid a situation. Meanwhile, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres told the UN General Assembly that apartheid made today light date, but sadly racism lives on. He says many of today's racism is deeply entrenched in centuries of colonialism and enslavement. He called for racism to be defeated. For SABC News, Amor Sanisitole. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Colton Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. It's 7.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. For three consecutive days, Nigeria did not record any new cases of the COVID-19 virus. Neither has there been any loss of life, though this has not been traced to the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine against COVID-19. 
The reasons are likely that it's the strict monitoring of citizens, adherence to safety measures and personal hygiene. Channel Africa's correspondent in Lagos, Collins Atohengbe, has more. The urge to have the ongoing vaccination of citizens against COVID-19 stopped was fueled by news from Europe, which tended to link certain developments like blood clothing, among others, to the use of the brand of vaccine, AstraZeneca, which Nigeria procured and has rolled out for administration to citizens. This was after the President, Muhammad Buhari, and his vice, Yemi Osibanjo, state governors, ministers, and frontier health care delivery workers have had the vaccine administered on them. Secretary to the Government of the Federation and Chairman Presidential Task Force on COVID-19 boss Mustafa says there is no need to stop the administration of the vaccine because there has been no report of any adverse effect after he had led other members of the executives to take the vaccine, even as state governors have taken the brand of AstraZeneca vaccine in use in Nigeria. I also led members of the Presidential Task Force on COVID-19 to be vaccinated and all the ministers have also taken this vaccine and by extension in the states governors have led in that regard. Therefore, I commend it to all eligible Nigerians to do so so that we can be protected from this virus. I therefore urge all Nigerians to recognize that we are not yet out of the woods. The PTF shall continue to emphasize and promote the strict adherence of the MPIs and for people to take the vaccines. The Minister for Health Osage Haniri says the vaccine in use in Nigeria is safe except that because it is new, whenever there is any changes in health condition after taking it, they are attributed to the vaccine. Even at that, the minister says it's safe to take it especially because the countries which have suspended its use have resumed administering it. The vaccine we have been using is safe and useful. We in Nigeria... We have not seen any adverse effect. But we have had reports of effects that were thought to have been connected to the vaccine in other countries, particularly in Europe. But because it is new, people are on the alert for any effects. So if you notice anything at all, if you cough, if you sneeze, you probably connect it to this vaccine. Many of the countries who have suspended the use have resumed. And this COVID-19 vaccine is the latest tool that we have to protect ourselves against this illness. However, Professor Philip Njemaze of the Institute of Advanced Research and Training says the application of AstraZeneca was authorized for emergency use and that whenever there is any reported case of side effects anywhere in the world, the first thing is to suspend its use and not to wait for there to be any report of adverse condition from its use before taking steps to halt the administration in Nigeria. This was just an emergency authorization. So we study what happens using a very important principle called precautionary measures. Precautionary means that if anything anywhere occurs, you will stop the use of that medicine because it's an experimental drug. We do not know. The, the manufacturers don't know what will happen because there is still no long-term effect. This was just produced. So that precautionary measure mandates that should anything occur in Ireland, Iceland, Norway, Spain, elsewhere, we will not wait until it happens at our papa. We must here in Nigeria immediately institute 
a suspension. That's what should be done with the AstraZeneca vaccine. The Director General of the National Agency for Food, Drug Administration and Control, NAPDAC, Professor Mojishola Adeyeye says the vaccine should not be stopped unless the adverse effect is of a statistically massive occurrence. Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna have reported anaphylactic reaction, bell palsy, temporary paralysis of the eye muscles. Should we then have stopped those two vaccines from being used? The benefits outweigh the risk. People are dying of COVID-19. The vaccine should not be stopped unless it is of a statistically massive occurrence. But Professor Njemaze says his stance is that Nigeria is not in a pandemic that could necessitate waiving this top call in response to reports of side effects from Europe because for one person, the medical calculation is 100% when it comes to determining the side effect. That is reason enough for the administration of AstraZeneca vaccine to have been suspended. You know, when you give a vaccine, the adverse effects can come even as late as 23 days later. So this is what should be done immediately. We should suspend the use of that vaccine. We are not in a pandemic in the real sense of it, as far as Nigeria is concerned. When you talk about it is 0.001%, for that person, that reaction has occurred, it is 100%. The cases of infected persons in Nigeria had a three-day straight respite. As there are no as there were no new cases recorded nor any casualty. But there is a silent reluctance among Nigerians due mainly to the feeling of insecurity from the vaccine as well as a possible sociocultural and religious beliefs. There are those who do not believe at all that there is coronavirus and, and therefore do not think they need any vaccine. As at last count, Nigeria has recorded over 164,000 infections, 148,000 recoveries and 2030 casualties since the index case of February 2020. The government has enjoined leaders, including religious and traditionals, to join in the effort to get their subjects vaccinated against the virus. From Lagos, Nigeria, I'm Colin Sosato Ingbe for Channel Africa News. Rwanda has confirmed 12 cases of the UK and South African COVID-19 variants. However, the health ministry says all cases have been recovered. Meanwhile, the government has warned of possible COVID-19 spikes in numbers should people not be vigilant as before. Fear is looming that people are gradually becoming complacent due to the ongoing COVID-19 vaccination process, thinking that vaccination protects people from contaminating the virus. From Kigali, Silvadas Karamera reports. It is now three weeks since Rwanda's Ministry of Health started the vaccination process to all citizens, and according to officials here, everything is going on as it was planned. But in the middle of this, new information has been emerging that actually Rwanda is one of those countries in which new COVID-19 variants have been detected. Dr. Daniel Ngamije admitted, adding 12 cases already identified have been recovered. We found two uh samples with the UK variant and uh, 10 with South Africa variant. And all of these uh, samples were from people who arrived at Kigali International Airport. They were tested positive a different period, of course, at their arrival. And they were, you know, identified as positive cases in the morning after less than 24 hours after the testing. Mm. And as usual, they were isolated until 
they were tested again, then declared without virus. So it means these people were from abroad. And so far, we are doing the same exercise in our treatment centers, and we didn't discover any variant of concern. With the ongoing vaccination process, fear is looming that majority vaccinated people against COVID-19 might be complacent against measures, a dangerous move if it ever happens. It is a joy to be vaccinated. I'll now be moving freely and come to the market, but continue protecting myself. I used to be very skeptical coming to the market because of the large numbers of people here. But now that we have been vaccinated, we will continue wearing our face masks and we are glad to be vaccinated because it's going to help us move freely. Because we work in the market, we meet a lot of different people. The vaccine is very beneficial to me and the vaccine is going to protect me given the nature of my work because I am confident in the safety of my life. Dr. Saben Sanzimana, the Director General of the Rwanda Biomedical Center, says the availability of vaccines in Rwanda shouldn't be the cause of complacency among people. People might think that just because we now have the vaccine, then COVID-19 is over. That is not the case. Actually, if we are not careful, the vaccine might be the very reason people become complacent and we see an increase in infections. The vaccine came as an answer to two challenges. One, to reduce the number of fatalities to the virus and to reduce the number of critically ill patients due to COVID-19. The vaccines we have here in Rwanda absolutely addresses these two issues 100% because a person that has received the vaccine can get infected with COVID-19, but they won't become critical or even die. However, the vaccine doesn't keep one from getting infected. You definitely can get infected and infect others that are not vaccinated. Health Minister Dr. Daniel Ngamira says lessening the protection measures on an individual basis could cost much, as well as exposing a new variant to the public. It's a subject of concern because you never know what kind of mutation will be there uh, and, we, and, and, and with capability of re resisting to the treatment. You have seen that uh, there is decrease of death recently due to treatment that we are giving to people affected with COVID. We are now coming with, with, with vaccines. So, uh, so far we are convinced that uh, and we, are, we believe that these vaccines are, are safe and strong enough to, to, to contain this existing uh, virus in the country. So we don't want to have this virus of concern. According to the figures provided by the Ministry of Health, about 300,000 people have been vaccinated so far since the start of the campaign on the 5th of this month. The health ministry also says more COVID vaccines will arrive in the country in the near future. The goal is to vaccinate 60% of the total population by June next year, 2022. Silvanus Kalimera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Now to Uganda, where President Yoweri Museveni remains undecided on whether or not he should be inoculated against the deadly COVID-19 virus. Channel Africa's James Shimangula has more. According to Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni, he and his wife, Janet, remain undecided on whether or not to be inoculated against the COVID-19 pandemic. 
The 76-year-old Museveni says once he chooses the vaccine that will be effective to him, he will be inoculated. Museveni says his wife Janet will also be inoculated with the very same vaccine that is to be used to vaccinate him, confirming that indeed he has not been vaccinated against COVID-19, Museveni said. I have not yet been vaccinated, nor has Janet, the one of the Chinese, the one of the Russians. Museveni made it clear that he is quite careful and well protected by the Ugandan system. However, the Ugandan leader did not expound on what he meant by saying he is well protected by the Ugandan system. As Museveni remains undecided on whether or not to be vaccinated, media communication experts in the Ugandan capital Kampala have made varying comments. One of them, Aden Welikamba, made the following laconic comment to the extent that Museveni should have been the first to be vaccinated to send a clear message to the people of Uganda that the vaccine is safe and now they can be vaccinated. He should have been the first person to take the vaccine, to bring the confidence among us Ugandans to take the vaccine. Adding a rider to remarks made by Welikamba is just as Kiplanga chairman of Uganda's Nurses and Midwives Union. The technical people in the Ministry of Health enlightened the population about information concerning this vaccine. Up to now, Uganda has received AstraZeneca made by India's Serum Institute as well as Johnson & Johnson developed by Janssen Vaccines in Leiden in the Netherlands and its Belgian parent company Janssen Pharmaceuticals. Also in Uganda are vaccines developed by China and Russia. Since March last year, Uganda has recorded more than 40,000 cases of COVID-19 infection with 334 deaths. Perhaps it is fitting to note that in many African countries, myths and misconceptions have surrounded vaccines that are already being administered to ordinary citizens and their leaders. According to the myths and misconceptions, COVID-19 vaccines are unsafe because they were developed in a very short time. But medical experts say the vaccines are proven safe and effective. Although they were developed in record time, they have gone through the same rigorous food and drug administration process as other vaccines meeting all safety standards. Regarding the myth that the vaccines have severe side effects such as allergic reactions, the experts admit that some participants in the vaccine clinical trials reported side effects similar to those experienced with other vaccines including muscle pain, chills, and headache. The experts say although the side effects are extremely rare, people can have severe allergic reactions to ingredients used in a vaccine. Now, the experts recommend that people with a history of severe allergic reactions such as anaphylaxis to the ingredients of the vaccine should not get the vaccination. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
A man must say good morning in the headlines. South African non-governmental organization AfriForum has submitted a formal application to the State Capture Commission to cross-examine President Cyril Ramaphosa regarding the ANC's policy on CADA deployment. Israelis are due to vote in the fourth general election in two years in what is widely seen as a referendum on the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And international charity Save the Children says the long-running war in Yemen is having a catastrophic effect on the country's children. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. It's 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Now, if women were taken more seriously, they could add 10% to Africa's gross domestic product by the year 2025. This is according to a 2019 report on gender inequality in Africa produced by Man management consulting company McKinsey. Although issues around women empowerment were in the spotlight on International Women's Day, conversations should be ongoing. With this in mind, we are now joined on the line by Lerato Tahane, partner at legal firm Bowman South Africa, to discuss the role of female lawyers in economic growth. Lerato, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu, um, and good morning to all of your listeners. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a, thank you for giving us the time. Now, Lerato, as a successful lawyer, what contributions do you see female lawyers making in the workplace and uh, South Africa's economy? Um, technical excellence aside, which is a given for many female lawyers who operate on the level that I do in big law, I see women in particular making three huge contributions in the workplace. Um, Firstly, the best female leaders that I know are natural nurturers. And we know that employees excel when they're nurtured, invested in and promoted. And I find that women in the workplace do this the best. Secondly, the most successful female lawyers that I know are comfortable with their own development areas. And I often find that when leaders are not afraid to share their authentic experiences, including some of their challenges, it makes people around them feel encouraged to be self-aware and to be open about their needs without the fear of any repercussions. And lastly, I find that the best female leaders who are lawyers are instinctively gifted at developing relationships, speaking, listening. They're more naturally wired to understand the needs of others in a relationship and quickly develop empathy. And I believe that these are things that are in short supply in the workplace in South Africa. Now, this leads me to my next question of which women inspire you? Can you just touch on one or two of them? (laughs) And why? You've touched on uh, partly why, but, uh, you know, just go into a little bit more detail. Well, you know, in preparing for this interview, I, I made a list of business leaders and very successful lawyers that I look up to. Um, as part of my response, but to be honest, that wouldn't have been an authentic response. The women that I'm most inspired by in my career are everyday, ordinary women who are juggling work, life, family, hobbies, and outreach. 
women who wake up every single day, juggle all of these things, and are still able to bring their whole self to work. I often feel like these are the real champions in my field of work, and they are changing the face of gender, uh, the face, um, the age of success, the gender of success, and what success looks like from the outside. And these are the women that I salute, and these are the women that I aspire to make proud every day when I wake up and bring my whole self to work. The everyday woman. Indeed. Now, Lerato, what advice would you give to a younger person or younger woman aspiring to, to, make a, to have a career in law? Uh, a couple of things, Lulu. Um, I'd encourage them to know when to be self-motivated in the workplace and to know when to be a team player. I believe that the most successful and effective women are the ones who know that it's important to come into the workplace and have the ability to work independently when it's necessary to do so, but also know that you must be able to cooperate and be a team player if the task at hand requires it. Secondly, um, I'd encourage them to play to their own strengths. Each one of us have our own strengths and weaknesses, and playing to your strengths while mitigating your weaknesses is one of the tricks that the best lawyers use all the time. Um, And I think lastly, I'd encourage them to welcome criticism. Um, This is an experience game. And, you know, for the longest time in in the legal profession, you're the new kid on the block and you have a lot to take, to learn. It takes years and years to develop um, the legal skills that make you an excellent lawyer. Um, And it's often difficult to hear that your skills aren't exactly where you'd hope they'd be. But that's at the heart of our profession. And you need to have a thick skin, be able to take feedback, positive and negative, and to use it to grow and stretch and develop yourself because that's how you ultimately become a good lawyer. And if I can throw another one in there that's just come to my mind. Go ahead. Make make an effort to connect with other women in the profession. You know, meeting other women, making genuine connections is one of the most beneficial things that you can do in your career as a woman. And I find that having women in the workplace um, that you form an unofficial sisterhood with um, comes with so many benefits and it just enriches your journey um, as, as, as someone who looks like us in the workplace. And gender bias in, 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 in that part of the world, in that uh, um, sector, have you experienced it? And, and generally, how, how do you deal with, uh, you know, uh, a negative um, side to uh, the legal fraternity? That's a very interesting question. Um, So, Lily, I've very recently become a mom. And the concept of parental status bias against women is one that's caught my attention now in in ways that it hasn't before. Um, You know, and I was just looking into some of the research before chatting to you this morning. And the research shows that full-time working mothers, you know, at the age of 42, for example, um, will suffer a wage penalty and will on average make 11% less than women without children, other women without children. And full-time working fathers of the same age will experience an, a wage bonus 
So, so they'll make 22% more um, than men without children and a lot more, obviously, than, than women without children. How do we change that, Lerato? You know, we, we've, and I think it's, it's across all industry sectors where mm-hmm. there is um, an underlying bias towards, uh, you know, mothers, towards, uh, you know, women in general. Um, you know, how do we work around that? And just considering the fact that there are um, days like International Women's Day, which are observed annually, and uh, Women's Day in South Africa, you know, um, how do we deal and, and kind of find a way of moving forward and ensuring that uh, men and bosses and whoever else are decision makers, uh, you know, level the playing field? I think it starts with knowledge, Lulu. I find many organizations will hear a statistic like this and say, "Mm -mm, not us, we do not fall into that category. Um, And I'd like to challenge those organizations to do an audit. It's really easy (laughs) to audit something like this, right, and see what the data says. Um, and, and And once you're confronted by the raw data and the reality of your organization, Start a meaningful conversation around what it's spitting out. I think people are blissfully ignorant, and that is the first part of the challenge. Um, So knowledge, audit what's happening, and then have a conversation around what the data shows. I'm I'm not, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if for many, many, many workplaces in South Africa, um, the data corroborates this. And I think that conversation needs to start sooner rather than later, right? And it can't be a conversation with the woman in the room talking about the issue. I'd like to hear more from the men in the room regarding what they think of what the data says and what role they want to play in changing the lived experiences of women in the workplace. There's so many conversations that men need to be a part of. Slowly but surely, we're seeing them getting involved, but they still need to do more going forward. Um, if we go into details, it will take us the whole day to get through this. But uh, it also takes, uh, I guess, women like uh, yourself and myself uh, to, to just take charge and, and start uh, trying to make headway in, in finding solutions and, and being involved. Indeed, it does. Um, and I think we, we really do downplay the power of having honest and robust conversations, um, which are just genuinely geared towards identifying the problem and finding a resolution that works for everybody. And I think there's room and space to do that, not just on International Women's Day, but every day, really. Well, Lerato, thank you so much for joining us. And congratulations on your papa. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a blessing and uh, uh, the fight will continue. Thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, and to you too. That's uh, Lerato Tahane, partner at legal firm Bowman South Africa, joining us on the line at 7.42 Central African time. And you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The Babedi Kingdom at uh, Jade Third Palace at Mutlaledzi Village outside Jane First in South Africa's Limpopo province has officially unveiled the Queen Mother, Manyaku Tulare, mother of the late King Tulare Victor Tulare III as the acting king of the Babedi nation. King Tulare Victor Tulare died in January this year due to COVID-19 related complications. The announcement was made by the family 
Kwamli's uncle Rampelane Tulare at the palace in front of over 200 Babedi traditional leaders. The late king Tulare is survived by two wives, four sons and a daughter who are all not eligible to ascend the throne. Ruzani Chibase reports. Bapedi praising us, ushering in the Queen's mother. The family announced that none of the five children of the king will ascend the throne to replace King Tulari as their mothers were not candle wives. The family's uncle, Rampelani Tulari, says the Bapedi nation is going to marry a candle wife in Lesotho who will give birth to the heir to the throne. When the time goes by, we are going to marry a candle wife as per the wish of the late king. The Bapedi peoples were notified about it and have already contributed requirement to marry her. We were only left with telling traditional leaders about it. We are going to marry her in Lesotho. Tulare says the family has also agreed that the queen mother, Manyaka Tulari, will act as the regent until the candle wife is married. We agree that the Queen Mother will act for a while. She might act for years until we marry the candle wife who will lead us. We pray she will give birth to our king. Meanwhile, spokesperson of the royal family in Tompimampuru says the raising of the king's successor by the candle wife will be arranged within the royal family. In our custom and uh, tradition, it's not a question of husband and wife. The candle wife is the wife of the nation. So it is our responsibility in the royal house as to who will get into that room and do the thing and do the right thing. Well, that report by Rosani Chabase. It is 7.45 Central African time. And Tabi Solohuku standing by with our economics update. Good morning. First Capital Bank executives in Zimbabwe have revealed a strategic plan to bail out the teetering tourism sector out of bankruptcy following the global health scare precipitated by COVID-19. From March 2020, governments grounded international flights to prevent contagion as COVID-19 spiraled out of control. But the full wrath of the global economic shutdowns was felt hardest in tourism-dependent economies like Zimbabwe, which saw operators winding down, sending staff home and losing $1 billion U.S. dollars in potential revenue in the process. The tourism industry generates about $2 billion U.S. dollars for Zimbabwe's economy. 
Africa can achieve economic growth while also addressing green issues, including the need to combat climate change. That's the word from trade economics uh, economist Max Milano Mendes Para of the Overseas Development Institute, the ODI. He was speaking during a podcast organized about the UN's Economic Commission for Africa and the ODI. Mendes Para says a greener African continental free trade area can be achieved if governments on the continent adopt proactive, environment friendly policies and enforce environmental standards. He says that trade in Africa will be essential in achieving economic transformation and free trade area policies can at the same time also address climate change. President Sir Ramaphosa has been a leading proponent of the free trade area. Namibia has maintained a duty-free quota access to the United Kingdom market, but this has, however, now been hampered by the rules of origin emanating from the UK's nasty divorce from the European Union. This was among pertinent issues addressed by Mulima Mushogobanji, the Chief Executive Officer of the Meat Corporation of Namibia, during the British High Commission's recent visit to the beef company. The duty-free quota is accessible through the Southern African Customs Union United Kingdom European Partnership Agreement. Mietco and the beef sector are beneficiaries of this agreement with regards to exporting deboned beef. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, has once again warned that the national grid is under severe pressure and has appealed to people to switch off all non-essential appliances. These include pool pumps. People are urged not to leave lights on unnecessarily. The power utility ended stage 2 load shedding last Friday. Economists say load shedding costs the economy billions every day and constrains economic growth. However, experts warn that the power grid must be protected from collapse and load shedding is an important tool until further power plants come on stream. A business lobby group, Business for Africa, or B4SA, has called on government to shift the emphasis on its vaccine program to target the elderly and vulnerable sooner to prevent hospitals being overrun during the expected third wave of COVID-19 infections. South Africa is in the midst of its vaccination campaign targeting healthcare workers. Stavros Nikola, an executive of Aspen Farmcare, who also serves as chairperson of the public health work group at B4SA, says that they have written to government on the matter. So far, only 160,000 health workers have been vaccinated, just 13% of the target to vaccinate 1.25 million people by the end of the first quarter. The US dollar is a trading at a 379.12 Nigerian Nara, 1086 Botswana Pula, 1094 Kenyan shilling and a 22.3 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies in Brazil, one US dollar trades at 5 roll 50. Russia, 74 rubles 58. India, 72 rupees 47. China, 6 yuan 50. And in South Africa, a dollar is trading at 14 rand 75. 72 pence to the British pound and 83 cents to Euro gold $1,734 and platinum $1,174 per ounce brand crude oil is at $63.98 a barrel. From an African perspective, this remains your favorite channel.
Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. South Africa's Bafana Bafana, Mulefinteke has called up five more players to the national setup to beef up the squad ahead of crucial Afghan qualifiers against Ghana and Sudan this week. Bafana played their Black Stars of Ghana on Thursday night at FNB Stadium south of Johannesburg before flying to Sudan for the final match against the host in Khartoum on Sunday. With certain players still having issues to travel to South Africa due to COVID-19 restrictions, Coach Nteki has decided to add five more new faces to the squad. Team doctor, Dr. Tulani Ngwenya says they are busy negotiating for players to join them in Sudan. To be honest, uh, they will not be coming to South Africa, those that haven't arrived. So the next negotiation now is for them to come and join us in Sudan. The situation is that is this quarantine that we are trying to negotiate because the team says that if we're going to release our player and then coming back to us, having to quarantine for so long, then we are missing out. And uh, what if we want to use then the player, then we can't use the player. Cricket South Africa, CSA congratulated the Proteas women's team following their historic white ball double triumph against India after they clinched the T20 International Series to add to the five-match ODI Series they won last week. Having won the ODI Series 4-1, they took an unassailable 2-0 series lead in the three-match series when they won the second match at Lucknow by six wickets in a thriller that went down to the final ball. It is the first time the Proteas have beaten India in a T20 Series. President Uhuru Kenyatta has attributed Kenya's growing profile as a top sporting nation to strong partnerships between the government and actors in the private sector. From the time we started and we agreed as government to work together and also with our private sector, we have seen this tour grow from strength to strength and will continue to enable us to make Kenya a truly great sporting country. The head of the state vows for the decentralization of golf to the grassroots, saying involvement of junior and amateur golfers will help the sport to grow much faster. Cabinet Secretary for Sports, Amina Mohammed, took the cue. Uh, it's going to be a major uh, sporting year for our country. Uh, apart from uh, the Kenya Open and the Savannah Classic, uh, we will be hosting the Safari Rally in June. We will have the Olympics in Tokyo and our team is ready and raring to go. We will also have the under-20 here in July. And uh, in September, we have the Continental Tour. And so it's going to be a wonderful year for, uh, for Kenya, and we're all hoping and praying that uh, as these events uh, roll out, that we'll have more and more spectators coming, uh, because we're hopeful that uh, we'll have defeated this uh, horrible disease that uh, has invaded our space. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai That wraps up Africa rise and shine today for myself Lulu Gabu and the rest of the team our producer Pumutora Magaza technical producer Wiseman Mangaile and the rest of the team thank you for joining us for comments about our show send us an email at info@channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at @riseshineafrica I'm taking us to the top of the hour is Harare by Letambulu goodbye and keep safe